Hey, welcome to a special edition, special Friday edition of the Who's Number One podcast. Uh, joined by Howell Teague. Howell Teague, I said his name wrong. You uh, did say my name wrong. What's si- up? Sitting in for uh, Chase Smith today, as always, Ricardo Amendolia joining us from uh, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and calling in from San Diego, California. We got Keenan Cornelius. First off, Keenan, how you doing out there? Doing good, man. Just kind of taking things as they come, following the news and paying attention to the outbreak numbers. Just trying to get educated on the the subject. Uh, so you were basically the first person, first major gym I saw to uh, to close up. What was uh, what was going through your head? What led to that? Like, I mean, obviously everybody else is seeing a lot of other closures and following. What what made you to decide to be the first one to just be like, you know what, let's take a little break? Yeah, I just I our social media that we have in the jiu-jitsu community is like so full of memes and jokes and everyone is kind of trying to minimize the situation and hope that it goes away, which I think is valid because we all want this to go away for sure. But after paying attention, like I I followed the the outbreak in China really closely because whenever like interesting stuff like that shows up, I always follow it pretty thoroughly and just paying attention to like the rate of, the expansion of this and how quickly it spread across the world. And then I think when Italy didn't react and like Italy was acting how the U S is acting right now, like kind of minimizing, or at least the, on the social media side, like they kind of minimized the issue and everyone went about their daily lives. And then there was just this explosion of cases and it led to this crazy lockdown. Right. And so I was seeing that same thing kind of happen here and in our jiu-jitsu community, especially because no one wanted to admit that they shouldn't go to jiu-jitsu. And I saw all these, like, even we posted one, like, yeah, like, wash your hands, like, do the stuff that they recommended. But obviously, that's not going to protect you when you're rolling with someone. So I realized, so I was looking at how this all kind of works and how the only way to slow a spread of a virus is just to maximize social distancing right like spread yourselves out from people and jiu-jitsu is not very good for that right (laughs) about keeping distance yeah it's the opposite it's it's literally the worst environment you can put yourself in if you're trying to not spread a virus and then when there was the issue of pans closing that the statement said that your the cdc asked for uh to shut down events of 100 people or more and like some of my classes are that big or like the Sunday open mat, for instance, has over a hundred people, probably 150 people coming in and out throughout the full course of the open mat. And that kind of made me realize like, okay, well at that level, gyms should be closing. And I know other gyms in San Diego have that many students. Like when I was at Autos, they had a hundred students on the mat on like any given night at 6 PM. And so I think someone just needed to like make the jump and just be the guy who said like, I'm going to close just to kind of kick it off and just get things going. So me and Miha talked about it and we kind of laid out our plan of how we're going to try and deal with it financially. But I think everyone knows it's the right thing to do. And like, I hope like you can only hope that you look foolish at the end of it. Like we're closing too early and maybe in two weeks, somehow they get like it under control, which I don't think is going to happen by all indications. But I figured like take a little heat from people saying I'm causing panic and hysteria but i think it's for the greater good overall and hopefully it kicked off a few more people to close their gyms and maybe the jiu-jitsu like the jiu-jitsu community is so tight-knit and everyone knows each other and everyone knows what's going on and all the all of every gym like all the main gyms know what's happening in the other gyms as far as like what we post and stuff everyone follows everyone 
So I think there is, uh, like, we can make more of an impact than some people have been letting on, like some of the naysayers about closing gyms. Because if everyone just comes to the conclusion that training jiu-jitsu in close contact with a bunch of people on the mat is a pretty surefire way to spread a virus around, like, if all of the gyms take action now, while it's still a low number of cases in the U.S., at least the jiu-jitsu population won't be a part of the problem, you know? So I think there's a lot of people focused on themselves saying like, oh, it's an old person virus. It only affects old people and the immune compromised people. But it's like, first of all, that's not entirely true from everything that I've seen. And I've done a lot of research on this so far. It's like, no one is really safe. Like it's going to be, it can hit anyone really hard. And there's a lot of young people that are still getting hospitalized. Uh, So it's just important to kind of follow the playbook as far as virus outbreaks go and every virus expert that I've listened to and paid attention to is talking about lessening the curve of infection. And that's basically what I'm trying to do my little part in and why I'm speaking out about it on Instagram and stuff and trying to take some steps. Yeah. I think something that uh, a lot of people, I mean, you can't just say with this thing, like, all right, stay home if you're sick because you can transmit this thing when you're not showing any signs yet, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's like you can be asymptomatic. That's, that's yeah. something. It looks like we lost Keenan there. Let's get him to call back in. But uh, yeah, I think this is an interesting move, though, right? Oh, I'm, Bear, I'm, Bear just Bear just bounced Keenan. All right, <laughs> let me get let me, let me get Keenan to go on call I, three. I think this is a I think this is an interesting topic, though, about what you mentioned, Mike, about how um, you don't have to be showing symptoms. You don't have to be sick to be a carrier of the coronavirus, the, the COVID-19. Um, Ricardo, yeah, yeah. maybe you want to give us a little bit of perspective about what's the vibe like right up, uh, you know, right now there in, in, in Hamilton, Ontario, in, in Canada? Because, um, I mean, major case was just announced. The prime minister's wife, Sophie Trudeau, just got tested positive for coronavirus. So it's pretty real, right? Yeah, it's pretty real. I mean, it's not... It's not as crazy as what's going on in Italy, and I don't even think in the U.S. Like from what I can, from what I heard today, the latest I can tell you, uh, March break's supposed to start next week for elementary schools. They're extending it another two weeks. I don't know too many jujitsu schools that have closed. There are a lot of like a couple of them are saying we're going to close for the weekend or a few days. Um, a lot of them are just kind of saying like be cautious, wash your hands, don't come in if you're sick. Um, but I know some tournaments have been delayed. I know that the tournament scenes. Uh, being affected so not as much in the academy perspective but a lot of tournaments have been either canceled or postponed and you know throughout canada so that's that's kind of my update yeah it really got real when the prime minister's wife uh came out positive there so that's uh yeah it's it's a real thing here but it's not as crazy you know what i mean like there's not as much much hysteria that being said i just got back from the grocery store I had to barambolo two old ladies just to get some toilet paper. It's kind of crazy (laughs) at the grocery stores right now. I I will admit that. But uh, aside from that, not too bad. Well, just while we're working to get the the other guys back on the call, I think, Keenan, we got you back now. I got a question for you, Keenan, actually. You mentioned you you were following the case when it was still uh, developing in in China, South Korea, and Italy. Um, But then why want to know, when did it become real for you? What was the moment when you really thought, man, I need to take action about this? Yeah, I think when the European nations started having to close uh, flights down and shut down travel and actually initiate some sort of lockdown where people are, it's actually, from what I read, and like I, the, the news is like a risky thing to quote, but 
uh, from what I read, it's actually a fine, and you can go to, you can go to jail for up to three months to be to go outside in Italy right now if it's not an absolutely essential trip to the grocery store or to a hospital. So, when the world is reacting like that, and you see the real effects, and governments and nations are taking these massive steps to try and slow something down that like if you look at just the numbers it doesn't seem like a very high number but the reason everyone's acting like that is because of the exponential growth of how viruses spread throughout a population and so when i saw that happening and i started uh, watching some of the interviews of people who've actually gotten through the virus and how they felt and looking into the actual effects of it and how it's not just like you feel kind of shitty it's like one of the worst flus you'll ever get in your life if or the feeling of one of the worst flus you'll ever get in your life even for young people that just doesn't sound very good and so if it's going to put you out for four to six weeks anyways you might as well take steps to try and minimize that and slow it down because i think everyone knows that the the u.s health system is not adequately prepared for a massive influx of patients and really our only out our only option is to push for some sort of isolation from each other to slow down the spread and uh, yeah because what I they said even... is that pretty much anybody who gets this ends up in the icu right and you know there are only so many intensive care unit beds in the entire country it simply couldn't handle if the if the numbers that they project do get as sick as as, as what they believe that 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 could basically just crush the healthcare system under the weight of that yeah i, I don't think everyone needs to be in a uh like go, even to go to the hospital, but I think it's a significant amount and there's so many people in the world that even a small percentage of that could easily overwhelm things. Um, I think the real issue of how it affects jujitsu is like the financials of it. And I think gym owners are just really panicking with how they're going to cover their costs um, during this time when people aren't going to train. And I think everyone's kind of afraid of losing their gym and things like that. But if uh, I would encourage them to look into their insurance that they have on their gym and see if there's any sort of disaster relief in the insurance policy that you have. Um, I know I'm looking into that myself to try and deal with some of the losses we're going to take and uh, waiting for some sort of government aid as well. I know they're putting together a bill or some, they're signing something later this week for uh, disaster relief. I think I read a headline this morning about declaring a uh, national emergency which will free up a lot of funds to provide support to people who, who this is affecting and really jiu-jitsu is it's affecting our industry it will, or will affect our industry more than most because you can't train unless you're trained with people you're isolated with in that kind of scenario but um i think it's just important to like understand that you have to take these steps preemptively even if it seems too soon to really have an effect because if you wait until something shows up in your area the amount of tests that are available is not enough to really give an accurate number of how many people are infected so i think just erring on the side of caution is the way to go um and if, if we as a community kind of slow down the process a little bit it, it could save people's lives and i think that's more important than our money right now if you if you can you know take care of yourself in the process as well now you're not the only gym to have closed, um, not just in San Diego, but we do believe that you were the first. Uh, since then, we've got a, a rapidly developing and changing list of gyms all across the world, actually, that um, are closing temporarily or until further notice. 
Um, we've got multiple gyms in San Diego, yourself, Atos, and University of Jiu-Jitsu have all announced temporary closures. Um, New York, Marcelo Garcia, Henzo Gracie, uh, Essential Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, we've seen gyms in, in Ireland. We've seen gyms in London. We've seen gyms in Norway and Denmark. And apparently pretty much every single jiu-jitsu gym in Portugal right now has been advised to close by the, the local federation. Um, obviously, we mentioned the cases such as in, um, in, in China, South Korea, and, and Italy, where it's pretty much illegal right now to even have gatherings over a certain amount of people. But um, this, this list is, is constantly updating. We're, we're updating it on the site if you want to go check it out. But, of course, uh, there are a number of tournaments that have been canceled through this as well. So the IPJGF have canceled every single one of their tournaments through till the end of April. Um, multiple other smaller tournaments as well, such as BJJ Tour, Dream, uh, Jiu-Jitsu World League, and, of course, Fight to Win this Fight weekend. To win, yeah, I was, I was scheduled to drive out to Dallas. I was going to be on my way there i thought it was going to happen tonight and uh yeah that one went down so i mean canceled you got the, the day. call what like an hour and a half ago yeah right? canceled the day of uh i think they, their option was to go uh without a crowd and it just seemed like i don't know probably financially didn't make sense to do that for them and uh yeah for the immediate future we don't know what's going to be going on with jiu-jitsu tournaments or competitions or or what the options are i mean the only the only thing i can think of that's on the schedule is our who's number one on march 28th we're gonna have to see what what goes on there uh there's bj stars in uh brazil which hasn't been yeah, hit as hard cool. so I'm, I'm sure they're not thinking about canceling that but of course world pro got postponed as well that was meant to be in early april yeah, that was basically the, basically the first one right yeah uh i mean pants going down was was uh that was the big one I think that's when it became real for a lot of people yeah. right because when when they announced that world pro in abu dhabi was going to be postponed possibly until later in the year. Abu Dhabi is Abu Dhabi, right? It kind of feels far removed from your everyday life. And I think a yeah, lot of well, people were just kind of like, oh, yeah, whatever, it doesn't really affect me. But when it's in Irvine, Orange County, right there in California, all of a sudden people are like, damn, that's my doorstep, you know? Yeah, somebody from our company actually got quarantined in Abu Dhabi like a week before that. He was out at a, at a, a bicycle racing event where like, a, well, somebody from the Italian team tested positive, got stuck in his hotel room at, for a week in Abu Dhabi. Doesn't sound Did fun. Did he get released? He did. did he yeah, yeah, he's, he's back. Still there? Okay, he's back. Yeah, but yeah, you guys better keep an eye on his coughs and sneezes at the office there. What, what were you saying? Yeah, there's not many people around the office. It's just a, just a few of us. What were you saying, <laughs> Kina? I I think uh, it was a really. I think it's really great that the leading gyms in the country are shutting down early like this. I think it sets a great example for some for the, the jujitsu population as a whole. And uh, I know a lot of the events didn't actually want to close and they were closed by the venues more than the event themselves because those are big money events. Pan Am, isn't Pan Am's their highest registrant or Europeans and then Pan Am's or something? Like, that's it's a like, huge it's actually amount like the third. It's actually the third or fourth in terms of participation in the annual calendar. I think Ma- Master I, Worlds is probably up there. Masters Worlds, yeah. uh, Europeans, Brazilian Nationals. But I did speak with the IBJGF a number of times in the lead up to the news of them canceling the event. And the the truth is that they, of course, they had the, the, the concerns ever since, you know, day one, and they were monitoring the situation closely. But ultimately, they felt that they weren't the ones who were there to make the decision because you could preemptively close an event like that. Or, you know, what you could do is you could follow the government advice. And they were very open about the fact that we don't know what to do. Is like yeah. we are not authorities in anything to do with infectious diseases, so they did wait until the university made the decision on their behalf because they didn't feel like they wanted to do something drastic if it wasn't necessary. So it's just a yeah, that's super fair. Perspective. 
Yeah, and it's tough. To, it's tough to really even follow what the like. I'm sure the events are in better communication because they're being uh, the venues are probably being communicated with or are communicating with the government. But um, I know Seth was trying to push for his fight to wins as well. I saw a, a pretty spicy Facebook post from him <laughs> talking about how he wants to keep things going and not live in fear of it all. But I think erring on the side of caution is a really good idea. And if we can make even a small impact, that's great. And I think that's what we, we should all be pushing for. Uh, but also, yeah, one, one thing I noticed, and maybe you guys noticed this too, but no one was really talking about it. Like no one, no one wanted to touch the subject on social media. Like no one wanted to talk about the virus and what it can do and how it's going to affect all of us. And there was sort of this, like, I think maybe because it seemed political almost with the differing viewpoints on it with like the Trump administration, uh, kind of diminishing it and talking about it, how it's just like a normal flu. And then the other side, like saying, we're not doing enough. Like weeks ago, people are saying every, like, it's not enough. We're unprepared, blah, blah, blah. And so I think on social media, people are really careful to touch on subjects that are really divided like that. But this isn't a subject that should divide people. It's something that we all have to like really discuss and figure out. And um, yeah, this isn't ideology. That, you know, th this isn't like about immigration yeah. or about the healthcare debate. This is an actual a threat to society. This isn't about right. beliefs. I don't think it's up for debate even like <laughs> I don't think you can have a viewpoint on it. It's like there's a very <laughs> clear course of action that people have to follow to diminish the, it, the impact. Like overall, obviously, human life is more valuable than the economy. So we need to prioritize human life and make sure that we're taking the steps that we can. So I'm not I, I think the resistance that people are seeing um, to it are is more just ignorance of the topic. And I think if they if you yeah like listen to some of the experts and actually hear what they have to say everyone's going to get on the same page and if that happens today or in a week we're all going to be on the same page very soon because it's all going to be affecting us equally well, well speaking of resistance sorry but yeah. i i have to ask keenan because i i happened to notice yesterday that you got into it a little bit with gary tonan um because he had maybe a slightly resistant attitude to it about how he was adamant that he was keeping his gym open, that he took a very different stance to you. Um, could you explain a little bit about what that conversation was like and what happened? Yeah, I try not to get into it too much because I mean, really all I'm going to tell him is just regurgitate the facts that I've absorbed from what my research and uh, his personal viewpoint on it. He see, it seemed like he felt a little attacked by me. He said, I was like, he said, I, uh, was insinuating that everyone was being irresponsible and and he used the word asshole like <laughs> that I called people an asshole for not closing their gym which I did not say but I'm really I like everyone's got to make their personal choices and I think any gyms that stay open are going to very quickly see a huge drop in their student attendance anyways um, but I, I really just closed the gym to set the precedent and try and make I don't know, just make the first move and try and kick off the action a little earlier than maybe is absolutely necessary. Like, sure, you could keep your gym open for a while and no one's going to get infected at your gym. I don't think anyone's arguing that. But really, I think we should all just start taking steps as early as possible because it seems like the main issue with this and how it's affected these countries so negatively is just like not taking proactive steps and waiting to like holding out as long as possible to make sure that you have you're making as much money as you can in the time before that there's an actual shutdown. So he was a little upset. I'm pretty sure if you look at the comments, it's, it's mostly people just correcting him and uh, trying to educate him on it. But he also had the, 
the viewpoint of like, okay, well, if you're going to close for a small amount of time, and if you see all the, the list of gyms, there's like a, a, a start date to the closure and an end date. And that's just to like put it in perspective, like we're waiting to see if there's more information and then potentially we could open back up. I'm pretty sure none of the gyms are going to open back up. It's just like the, the, the way it's spreading and with exponential growth rate and everything that I've looked at about how viruses and uh, epidemics and pandemics, which this is now, and how they work, is it gets much worse before it gets better. So he was saying, if you're not prepared to close down your gym for six months, then why close it at all? And I think, like, I think there's a little bit of, uh, I I think it's called normalcy bias, where it's like you just expect things to continue the way they are right now because that's how things have been for a while. But in the event of a disaster, and this is a a disaster (laughs) for the world, basically, and where it can become a huge disaster. And I think everyone sees the the, on, the incoming threat of that now. Um, I think we do have to be prepared for that kind of, because if there's one thing that no one's going to want to do, if a significant portion of the population is sick and contagious asymptomatically is jujitsu. So I'm preparing now for <laughs> the long haul just in case. And I think it's better to err on the side of caution. I mean, I, I hope for the best, but I'm uh, prepared for the worst, I would say. And I think most people need to take that that standpoint. I, I don't think uh, I the only way you can really screw yourself in this situation is just not being prepared. So I think it's best to just prepare. There's no downside. What would you be uh, waiting for to reopen? Like what would, what would you want things to be like before you reopen? And how long do you think you'd be willing to go? I mean, I'm I'm in a fortunate position because I have my online instructional site. So. I can probably hold out longer than most people, which like that's part of the reason I can close so early and make the decisive choice like that. But I know a lot of like my gym is not even close to being done. Like <laughs> I started building it two months ago. I've been working so hard that I've, I've sunk every dollar that I earn back into the gym. Like I have a massive investment in this building and the people in it and the business that I'm trying to create. Um, and I think it's like short, he said it was short-sighted, but I think it's short-sighted to not look into these six months that it might take for the virus to start going on a downturn. Um, I think trying to stay open during that time is kind of a waste of your efforts when we should you sh- you should be trying to prepare yourself for uh, to like make income with your jujitsu or whatever it is that you do online or from a remote location, which is what I'm trying to set up right now. Is just like tra- pivoting quickly. Like if, if you want to be, if you need to adapt to the new environment, you need to adapt quickly to get the most out of it. So I'm trying to adapt to the, the potential new environment. Worst case scenario, for, like it's not, it's the best case scenario, really. But best case scenario, it goes away in a couple weeks. There's some sort of treatment that comes out that is really effective. And the global focus on this creates some sort of protocol that is really effective at keeping the virus at bay. Um, that would be awesome. Uh, I don't think that's how these things work, though. From what I understand, it's going to take a while and it could take three months or six months or it could be a very long time before people feel comfortable training again. And this what are you guys doing in the meantime then? Because, uh, you know, you've obviously you've got a student base. Um, you've got people who, you know, are passionate about jujitsu. We've we've seen recommendations as well, especially from, from people who actually from within the jujitsu community in Italy who have said, listen, guys, don't suddenly start arranging like 
garage sessions. Don't try and set up little private training sessions away from the gym just because you want to get your jujitsu fix in. We found out the hard way that is a bad thing to do. So people obviously still have this desire, and we, we know what it's like. People got ringworm, they hide it. They go to oh, the gym. Yeah. People, people train sick. Yeah, yeah they go to the yeah. gym. They, they'll have a, like All serious injuries, right? Yeah, so yeah. jujitsu people are not that smart when it comes to training yeah. with some kind of affliction. Well, I mean, so, if, if you think like leading up to pans, I mean, Keenan, you know this is true. Like leading up to pans, if somebody started thinking like, "Oh, I'm coughing a little bit," and I, you know, and they're suspicious, a lot of true. people out there would just. I, I got to get ready for pants. Yep. A lot of people would do that. And then- yeah. They'll just disregard it, other people. And it's super easy to just minimize this. And there's a lot of people out there thinking that they're tougher than a virus, which I think is hilarious. So I was talking to one of my friends and he thinks it's funny that people are trying to act tougher than a virus. Like, <laughs> Oh, I, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die doing jujitsu, but it's, it's not about you. It's not about the individual. And people have been messaging me kind of try, like, obviously there's a lot of, most people understand the situation, I think, but there are a few, people who are trying to say that it's like still a hoax or it's like some media blown out of proportion. There's more people have recovered than have died. It's let less deaths than the flu in a year, all of that. But that I think they're failing to actually look at how the growth rate occurs and the actual, ex, actual exponential growth of the thing. So, so what have you I, been doing? Cause you, you, you mentioned that you wanted to offer something to your students oh, yeah. while the gym's closed, right? Right. I, I, so I would encourage, the students of all these gyms that are closing if your gym is closing you should understand that that's the right choice to help protect you and your family even if it's just from a minute a minimal risk as it is right now the risk is minimal to people for them for you to actually just catch it like even if gyms stayed open for another week potentially um but i think the student body should continue to try and support their gym if they can and try and look for creative ways to still get value out of the instructor and the people in the gym um i personally uh, have a group on an app where I can communicate with the entire student body all at once in like a chat form, almost like a social media thing um, with different threads where we can discuss different topics. And I'm trying to keep everyone connected. Like we're all going to play games together online and at uh, the class times, like at noon today, uh, after I get off this, I'm going to do a video breakdown for everyone and post it in the thread and try and like create some discussion where we can still learn things and try and give the students value. Um, hoping that they want, want to continue providing support to the gym so that they have a gym to come back to after this entire situation. So it really is a community effort, like outwards and inwards. So it's like we're I'm trying to support the people, and I hope that the, the people try and support the gym. Um, and I think if we all kind of can do what we can and uh, help each other out how we can, everyone's going to get through this just fine. Uh, it's just going to be a tough couple months when where we can't really train or you shouldn't really train. Hey Ricardo, you've been pretty so, silent. Oh, sorry, Keenan. Ricardo, you've been pretty no, silent. Yeah, you've been pretty silent today, Ricardo. What do you got? You haven't really said anything. You got some thoughts on all this stuff? I'm just trying to, you know, think whether it's uh, opportunity for me to intervene with some comedy here. But I don't. It's a serious <laughs> issue, so I'm trying to stay out of it. No, yeah. I just think like uh, to kind of you know touch on what Keenan's saying. I actually just think that uh, you know as funny as the sound or as sad as it sounds, I think a lot of people in the jiu-jitsu world live in their own jiu-jitsu bubble and they don't have any idea what's going on as far as health or politics and stuff like that. So sometimes I don't think it's necessarily that they're like, I'm tougher than the virus, but I think they legit don't even realize how bad this could be. And I think now, like today, we're at a period where it's like, oh shit, this is real. Yeah. So I'm- now is the tipping point where people, even if they didn't like, you know, if they were kind of uh negligent or just didn't realize it 
they're going to know at this point today. And if not today, tomorrow, or the next day, because it's, it's getting real. Like I said, just my, my very brief example of it is I went to the grocery store yesterday. Everything was fine today. Hysteria. So obviously things are changing out here in Canada. I can't imagine how it is in the U S and some other places, but you know, I, I don't know enough about the subject myself to really make a comment about it. I was just hoping we were going to talk about lapel guard here today. So uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's why I yeah, came no, you, you talk about the bubble. I mean, I'm, I'm 100% one of those people. I didn't even know the Super Bowl happened yeah. until it was like halfway over. Like, uh, I didn't even look up the symptoms for this thing until 24 hours after they canceled the NBA season. That's how how far behind I was on this thing. I'm not not like Keenan with yeah. all the info, but like if you look up, like I I have this website. I go to worldometers.info. It's pretty crazy. Like there's 1887 cases now. A week ago on March 5th, there was 200 in the USA. So it multiplies pretty fast. It's spreading pretty fast. Yeah, they, they, that's what's kind of scary about it. Is it's like. I, I, there's this great there's a few great links and if people want to see them i'll post them on my story today but some of the most educational videos i found on this are just q a's from former um researchers and for viral outbreaks and there's a great video on like how exponential growth works in relation to the virus and uh if you pay attention basically so like three days ago we we're at a thousand cases in the u.s and then every day it went up by like 250 cases to 300 cases, 275 cases. And then within three days, we're all like, I'm looking at it right now. We're at 1,873 cases. It's almost doubled in three days. So if you, and that's just the diagnosed cases, people that are actually going to hospitals and getting tested. So if you're just looking at the bare minimum of actual recorded cases, it's doubling every three to four days, three to five days, maybe. And if you just extrapolate that over a month, by like April 25th, we're reaching like 500,000 cases. So, and that's like on the low side because at, at the main issue right now is the U.S. The U.S. It doesn't have enough tests for people to just go get tested. And you have these celebrities and political figures just catching it randomly. If there's only a thousand cases, the chances of these people, like these political figures, who are like in the upper echelon of society, I guess, they're catching it too. There's probably a lot more than the numbers are letting on. So. I think it needs to be, I, I think everyone needs to be ready for a big spike in the, the cases when testing gets to be a little more available to everyone, um, like it is in Korea. And when that happens, I think that's when there's going to be even more panic because one day we're going to wake up and it's going to be 10,000 cases or 20,000 cases. And it's just, that's just the realism of how these viral outbreaks work. And this one just happens to be the kind of perfect storm of like uh, how contagious it is versus how lethal it is like it's not that deadly but that's bad because it means it can spread to a lot of people and then the people who are compromised with compromised immune systems or the elderly get really sick from this so it's just a it's a developing situation and everyone has to treat it super serious and there's just no time to like be selfish about your training or whatever you want to do to keep doing your jiu-jitsu just like just take the steps to try and help. I think everyone should. It's not about you. 
I think that's what we need to remind people here, right? That it's not about you. You yeah, it's not about not your, feel, your Pan Am's plane ticket. No, you may, <laughs> you may not, not feel sick. You, you may want to go train jiu-jitsu, but it's not about you. It's about being responsible, about being a good citizen and thinking about the people around you, thinking about those people with compromised immune systems, thinking about those people of relatives on your family who are you know less able to defend against the virus. It's not about you and how you feel and what you want to do. You really need to start thinking about other people in this world right so something i want to uh kick around to you guys uh a topic that i've been sort of thinking about what do you guys think would be the options for obviously the next week couple weeks is done what what would be the options for going back to competition after this do you think like maybe closed door because people say closed door events but it's like we've all been to pans like all the people in the crowd are competitors you know, it's it's yeah. it's majority competitors. So it's not like you're, it's not like you're clo- it's not like you're taking away the crowd from an NBA game where there's 25 competitors and you're taking away 20,000 people. What do you guys think would be be the move for going back into competitions? Obviously, super fights would be easier. Yeah, you know, you made a great point as well because um, this is something I didn't mention earlier. But when I was talking to the IBJJF before the official cancel um, cancellation of the event was announced, they did consider closing uh, holding it behind closed doors. But you know, you just look at the numbers. So you've got 12 mats. That's 24 competitors competing at the same time. Yeah. That's another 12 referees. That's another 12 table workers. That's another 12 flow table workers. That's all the IBJJF staff, all the referees, all the medics, all the flow staff, and another 24 competitors on deck. Yeah. And then he's got all the people in the weight divisions and the bullpens and stuff about to come out. So you immediately have way over 100 people in the room without any spectators and without any other divisions coming through. That's and it's just, just rolling all day. Right it's just new people coming, reusing those mats. And they were talking about, you know, shutting the, sh- the competition down like every hour, every hour and a half to like kick out anybody who'd been eliminated, cleaning the mats down and stuff. But that's an impossible task. You wouldn't be able to do that in a tournament of that size. So it does raise a good question. I mean, you know, super fights, are we going to be able to run those behind closed door? What do you think, Mike? I think closed door super fights could be an option. Uh, I mean, we had already been sort of working on trying to get something like that going. I mean, uh, it is a little tricky with like the way you say that you don't know if people are sick or not, but I mean, I think the athletes are probably a little less susceptible to, to having trouble with this, but I mean, if, if travel is going to be an option that, that way, I think, yeah, closed door super fights could, that, that could be, uh, the immediate path to like still having some jujitsu on. What do you think, Ricardo? That's that's a real thing. Uh, I think that that's what's uh, been suggested by a couple of promoters that I've spoken to, who will remain namelessly. But uh, they're they're definitely considering. You know, the show must go on to some capacity with low risk as possible. Uh, I'm not sure how the they're going to test they're going to test the athletes prior to it or how that's going to work. But I think that that's one of the options to have like closed door events. I know a couple guys have been talking about that, but yeah, it's, uh, it's really, really hard to say, you know, um, I know amateur and open events are, you know, definitely going to take a big hit and uh, everyone's just got to kind of, you know, follow suit. So we'll see what happens. And, you know, you did mention about how the show must go on. There is, only one show that I know of this weekend that is still going on, and that is Third Coast Grappling. Yeah, and it's interesting because they were one of the first, uh, some you know, pro events to announce that they were even affected by coronavirus. While while Seth and Fight to Win were full steam ahead, and until they got shut down by the city of Dallas, that uh, Third Coast Grappling they announced that they took steps to reduce the number of athletes that would be traveling in for the event and they would be hosting a locals-only Texas event. Now, currently, I mean, this could change in the next 24 hours. We don't know. But right now, the city in Houston where Third Coast Grappling is being held, that's that's still going to go ahead. But 
who knows, right? I mean, that could change between now and then. It so. could change in the next couple of hours. Like, it really could. I mean, I thought I was going to fight to win this morning. A week ago, we thought we were all going to be going out to pants. Yep. I mean, uh, yeah, things are moving pretty fast. What do you think, Keenan? What do you think's the the options for the future for jiu-jitsu competitions? I, I think this is that uh, normalcy bias again. This is people kind of expecting, like, oh, we can just kind of adapt to the situation and keep things going as normal with slight variations to the model, but... I don't think that's how, how it's going to play out. I think uh, the only realistic solution to that is that maybe if we get some sort of like fast testing kits where people can test themselves like at will, like through like in a drive through testing service or something, how they have in Korea, maybe people who have been tested and are not carrying the virus, maybe they can compete or something like that. Or maybe, I think more realistically, like the, the scale at which this stuff needs to be produced is so massive. I think we're going to have to wait it out like, one option, which I don't think is a good one, would be only letting people who have already had the virus and recovered compete because then they're immune to it. That would be one option. But I don't think you should go out and try and get the virus just so you can compete. Yeah, people would definitely try um, and get the virus if that was the case. The blue boats would be trying yeah. to get it hardcore. I think by that so time, I, I, the majority of the population has recovered. It, uh, it'll it be quite a while anyways um, for that for where that would even be viable. So. I don't know. I don't think it's really a good idea to be putting people indoors in close contact at all, because even if just one person gets it like that, it's literally one person. Like one person shows up in a city on a flight and they infect the entire city. Like it's one person. It's not like, oh, like, oh, yeah, if only one person gets it at our event, it's not that big of a deal. One person gets it. They infect 2.3 people, I think, is the, the, the R not number of this from what I saw recently. They infect 2.3 people. Those 2.3 people infect 2.3 other people. And then we just have the whole problem all over again. So I think most most physical contact, um, unless you're like it's sticking together with a small group of people like your family in your house or something, is probably not going to be encouraged anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, I think I just, it's – go ahead, Ricardo. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, touching back on uh, the options, uh, I forgot to mention earlier that – uh, I don't know if you guys saw, but Dana White mentioned that the UFCs are going to either transfer to smaller venues with, with no audience or they're all just going to go to the UFC uh, training center. So they're continuing to do their shows. I think the other concern might be for even some of the pro events is having the you know fighters fly in from different countries if that's a real thing, if that's happening for their events. So um, different options on both ends of the spectrum, but I guess we'll just see how it plays out. Yeah, I mean, they already closed down Europe travel to America for what, I mean, like 25 more days or something, maybe maybe more. So, yeah, we don't even know if uh, international people would be able to come if we were doing uh, those type of things. And, like, uh, something with the competition is, like, it's not ringworm where it's, like, I got to roll with you to get it from you, right? right? Like, you could give it to the referee. You could give it, like, yeah. it's uh, You could be sat two seats behind somebody on a plane and get it. Tricky situation. Yeah, um, I actually just spoke with someone who just went through this, like, a medical staff training who works at a hospital here in San Diego and they just went through the training process. And the way she described it to me was that if you cough or sneeze or something, there's very, very tiny droplets of like liquid that come out of your mouth that are actually can float in the air. They're so small. It's like a mist that can float. And it basically it'll float about six to eight feet before gravity starts to pull it down to the ground. And so that's what is contagious is these little misty droplets holding the virus in them, which is enough to be contagious. So in other countries where they're putting these restrictions on people, it's like if you have to go to the grocery store, you have to wait in a line. And in the line, you have to be six feet away from the person next to you. And they're only letting a certain amount of people into the grocery store where that 
you're not, you can't be that close to anyone else. So it's very contagious. And that's why I'm saying like jujitsu is the opposite of what you can do. Like if you can get infected from eight feet away, what do you think is going to happen if you're eyeball to eyeball and mount, you know, like there's no chance. I know we've mentioned a little as well about the cancellation of events, but let's just look at the bigger picture here is of course, this is not just jujitsu. Every single major major league sport, NHL, NFL, NBA, NCAA, in the, in the European Union, you've got the, the, the all the football leagues are shutting yeah. down. Champions leagues are, are canceled. Every yeah. everything's everything shut down for the rest of the season. It, now, jujitsu doesn't have a season. We're a year round sport. That's right? where we're lucky. We can just pick back up whenever. Right, but the yeah. question is, uh, when when do we pick back up? You know, are we talking two months, three months, six months down the line? Of course, how does that affect the season? Because with pans being cancelled. Does it mean that it gets pushed back? I would say does move it, pants to summer. Does, does move everything Worlds to summer. get cancelled? Yeah. Does Worlds get pushed back? How does it affect the season? Because there are there are many things at, at stake here. And, of course, the IBJJF, you know, the organization, they have a financial stake in this. They're going to find it tough to just cancel some of the biggest events of the year yeah. and, and not try to make that up at some point. So what do we think? Do you think it's a possibility that we could see those take place later in the year? I would say do it in the summer. I mean, if we're good by June or July, run pans there and then start your whole little circuit. Have Brasileiro after, have Worlds after. I mean, what do you think? Well, Anna? it's also going to get it's going to get pushed back further than that too because even when it becomes like there's some sort of all clear that you can go back to training from whatever official, you know, institution dictates that, um, you're still going to need to give the athletes time to train again because how are we supposed to train yeah, if true. some true. sort of mandate comes on soon? Like right now, we're still in the preemptive stage as far as the jiu-jitsu community. It's just like we're all on, you know, on edge try- trying to figure out what's going to happen next and the uncertainty of it is so scary to everyone. Um, but yeah, we could be in it for a long haul. I think they should definitely just push it back. What if we have two pans and two worlds in 2021? And it's like we run pans and worlds in the early part of the year, and then we run <laughs> the second pans and worlds later on. Who knows what's going to happen? I think probably, I mean, who knows? Like, it's all speculation, but I think it's just going to be canceled outright, and we'll just move on because they're still going to want to run Nogi worlds. They're still going to want to run Nogi pans. Like, if we get to that point and it's okay again, I think they'll just pick up where they left off, and we'll just yeah. probably just cross it's tough. off pans for it- this year. <laughs> It's a lot easier uh, than it looks to get these venues that you want. You know what I mean? So some of these guys are committed to schedules, uh, annual, you know, schedules with the, with the, uh, the venues. So it's not, it's not an easy thing where they can just rebook things in a month or two, especially huge venues like they do at the IBJJF worlds or pants. So we yeah, might actually just those see venues being booked a year out, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. So we might end up just seeing, you know, pans being done for this year and pick up again next year. And, um, you know, the sport goes on and picks up where it left off. You know, we might not be able to push things back, but, you know, I'm sure sooner, I mean, hopefully sooner or later it will, but we'll see what happens. I kind of wonder um, because, I... you know, there'll be a period in the results, you know, when you look at the kind of the records over the years, there'll be that gap in 2020 and like three, five years from now, I'm yeah. sure people will look back and they'll be like, why wasn't there a pans in 2020? Like why wasn't there a It's going to be a like NCAA. There's no NCAA wrestling champions, no basketball champions this year. Yeah, so that's why. What, what were you saying, Keenan? Well, I, I think uh, we all kind of need to make a push to have our voices heard by the government, actually, because I think of all the industries that like support, like we all make our money from this. This is our career jujitsu, right? Of all the industries that are going to be affected by this jujitsu is definitely going to be affected as one of the worst. 
And uh, I actually just checked my email and uh, like some newspapers have reached out to me. The Wall Street Journal just hit me up. They have a blue belt there as a reporter who wants to do like a piece on the closing of jujitsu gyms in some major news outlets. So I think we should all kind of push to like get some help from the government and try and keep the gyms open. Because if we are closed for a significant amount of time, a lot of a lot of gyms are not going to be able to just keep paying rent without students and without making an income. And I think at the end of all this, everything's going to take such a hit that we should be pushing to try and just keep our gyms afloat so people have places to train at the end of this. Because it's like, we got to take it in steps. If we're looking forward just to competition, it's like, sure. But really, the main issue is like where people are training every day. That's what they do. That's how, that's like the foundation of all of jujitsu's economy is like these jujitsu gyms that are going to get hit harder than anyone. Like sporting events is the first, it will be the, it's the first thing to go and the last thing to come back. I'm pretty sure. So uh, we should be pushing to try and get people to support the jujitsu gyms to keep everyone up and functional until we get through the whole process speaking of the sporting events of course we would be remiss to uh to not mention the fact that the olympics could potentially be cancelled as well you know this is uh this is about as big as you can get It's the biggest sporting event on earth is scheduled for later this year in japan and already we've seen a number of olympic qualifying events cancelled in judo and wrestling and so on and so on and um that's uh that's a very real possibility as well that's multi-billions of dollars when is the olympics supposed to start it's like july august i believe yeah so yeah but i mean you're gonna be messing with everybody's training and everything like yeah they can't just i mean if like keenan said if if everything gets good in june they can't just be like all right cool we're ready for the olympics Mm -hmm. you know if the if all their training centers have been closed down i mean you know we've talked a little bit about it earlier about how people need to get their jujitsu fixed but of course there are ways to do that during this time right you know match study watching techniques going back into the archives on flow grappling signing up for keenan online you know there are multiple ways to stay in the mix but i just i can't say it enough you know and and, and really people please don't train just don't do it don't go to the gym if you can help it don't set up impromptu training sessions private little little you know one-on-ones or or garage training or whatever because it's just not worth it right now you know this is not i I think there's at at the risk of like making a a stupid uh suggestion here i think there's one opportunity where you can still get some training in and it might it's with the people that you live with so if you have roommates and you guys are all living in the house together anyways sharing the same kitchen using the same bathroom at that point like it seems like this is so contagious that it's like if you're living together you guys are all going to get it anyways so if you have roommates a girlfriend a dog anything that you can train with like i think you could probably get some drilling in or some rolling i know i have mats upstairs and miha has been staying with me the last few months like i fully plan to train with him if it, if anyone has a reason for me not to do that i'd be happy to listen to it but i would like to still be able to get some some drilling in at least uh, with someone that I, I live with. So. There you go. So he's not the end of the world. Yeah, quarantine training. A little quarantine training for you, you and, you and me, huh? Yeah, if you're quarantined with someone already, it's like that. that's a pretty minimal risk, I think. Maybe we could get some quarantine open mats going. A whole bunch of people already got it. Just, just, you know, just, you know uh, what we got to do? We got we to gotta send in some spy cams to the Mendez brothers, the Rotolos brothers, the Tackett brothers, because, you know, they're still going to be training at their house. So let's yeah. get some they probably got footage all sorts somehow. Of yeah. Oh, yeah. Ricardo, you going to be bowling your kids? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, but I have their, like, stuffed animals. I'm going to try to do like Mikey Muzumechi used to do when he was a kid, and I still can't figure it out. 
Yeah. Also, and like you said, the online side of things, it's like that's one thing that fuels the jiu-jitsu scene so much is the online side, like your podcast, our podcast, the instructional sites. I think those will be getting a ton of viewership and helping keep people sane a lot. I, I mean, I know I'm planning to put a lot of effort into making videos and putting out content for people just to stay busy myself, but hopefully it provides some sort of entertainment to everyone. If this, if and when, it seems like more of a win than an if, this gets so bad that people kind of do need to stay more at their houses than go out, and we'll probably just be going out for absolute essentials if they're trying to avoid this, which we should all be trying to avoid it, I think. All right, Keenan, I got a question for you about, all right, so obviously since teaching and training is such a big part of your day usually, what are you doing to to make up for the time? What are you doing? You, you back to gaming? What are you doing over there? Yeah, I actually, I quit video games like a year and a half ago just to focus more on jiu-jitsu, and now it's like I'm stuck in my room, as you can see here. I'm just kind of getting set up for to be able to create content. I'm trying to set up a little studio upstairs. Um, my gym is like empty already, so I might be able to go back to the gym and film stuff there since no one's going to be in there. Uh, so I'm considering that as well. Um, but yeah, also, like I said, I have my group of students that I communicate with, and we're probably just going to play games and try and stay connected and keep a, keep us all as um, entertained and happy as possible. So yeah, I, I picked up video games again last night, but it felt dirty. What are you playing? I don't really want to do this. I've always been a League of Legends gamer. I used to be into first-person shooters, but then Andres back in the day got me into League of Legends, and it's it's it hooked me pretty hard. So it feels not something you dip in and out of, right? Yeah, it's like once you're in it, you get sucked in pretty hard. So I'm not really looking forward to that. And I, I (laughs) it's like I don't want to do it. I I should probably just try and avoid it. But it seems like when I'm sitting here for a few hours a day going forward, it might be tempting. So, Ricardo, you play League of Legends? And some of my students play League, too. So my students are hitting me up to try and play right now. No, no, and I'm they're enabling like you. What is League of Legends here. I, I tried to play Fortnite, and I got killed really fast. So oh, yeah, I, I can't. I used to play Call of Duty with my brother, and I die every five seconds. It's just frustrating. Yeah, uh, I, I'm not call... into the quick reflex games. I'm yeah. more into strategy games. I like playing Call the games Duty, from 30 I, years I, ago where you just know, need to know two buttons, and that's it. That, those, those ones are easier. What's, what's League of Legends like? What do you do in that thing? It's like a it's like a team 5v5 strategy game. So it's like everyone controls a character, and then there's like you each team has a little army, and you kind of have to fight each other and work your way to the enemy's base and destroy it. And it just you, it, each match lasts like 20 to 40 minutes. It's, it's kind of intensive, and you have to learn a lot to be able to play it effectively. It's definitely not a casual pick-up-and-play kind of game, but once you get into it, it's very in-depth and pretty engaging to a fault. All right, they have it down to a science how to keep you sucked into that thing. So Maybe Flo can make a little team and get going. Who do you team up with, Andres and uh, Miha? Who's your squad in there? Um, I actually I play with some people from Texas. My buddy Jay is my main gaming partner from back in the day. I, you actually make a lot of friends on video games. Like I made some good friends on that game that I stay in, stayed in touch with even when I stopped playing, and we just talked about other stuff and just became friends. That's just kind of how the internet works these days. But yeah, I don't, no one really from my area plays. Like I just play from with other people who do jujitsu around the world, basically. Andres got me into it and then quit two weeks later and then left me to die in the League of Legends <laughs> abyss. And so I just got abandoned in there by Andres. But maybe Damn I can get him sucked back. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what are you? Are you uh, anything running through your head? We know you're always innovative, innovative with techniques. Anything running through your head while you're uh, cooped up over there? Any uh, new lapel stuff you're thinking up when you're off the mats? What's going on with that? Um, you, you know, make me put weird. a like, 
make me have put a, I, I, uh, a gi on and hey let me try this on you yeah i mean i'll still be on the mats and like i said i'm gonna keep trying to train and uh usually it's when i'm training with people that i don't have to like i mean miha is really tough but really it comes down to like training with people that i'm not going to use like super a game on that I, I can kind of come up with new stuff maybe. But that's not always true because training at Optos, I came up with a lot of good stuff just to survive against Kynan and Lucas. You know, So sometimes it's like a survival thing. I just have to figure something out to keep doing well. Um, but yeah, I'm always trying to think of new ideas. But right now I'm thinking more about like how to adapt my platform for this event and like how to actually provide people with valuable content when they're not actually able to go train. So it's like how do you teach someone jiu-jitsu when they don't really get to go practice it like what are we going to teach people? Maybe like that, like train, like self drilling practices, like how to work on a dummy. Like, uh, yeah. If anyone has a jujitsu grappling dummy company, now would be a good time to start <laughs> creating some grappling dummies and sending those out and putting some marketing out for those, probably. So um, yeah, I mean, techniques kind of, for me, they kind of just come when they come. I don't really put too much thought into it. It's just like I see the opportunity and I take it, and then it's like, dang, that worked, and then I keep, then I like refine it over time. It takes me about two to three months to come up with a new technique, usually. Quite a long uh, cycle, right? Yeah. Go ahead, Ricardo. Yeah, sorry. I was going to ask you, you just talk about uh, coming up with techniques. How much of the of, of your innovation comes from competing, rolling, and match footage? Like, would you is it mostly from competing and rolling, or would it would you go back to match footage and say, hey, like I maybe I, I could see something here or missed an opportunity. I'm gonna try this. Like do you review is how do you come up with the stuff? I it's a combination of everything, but th- like ever since I was sixteen I started coming up with moves way before I discovered the use of the lapel. Um I actually started coming up with leg lock moves, believe it or not. Back in like 2009 when I was training at BJ Penns, I was really into leg locks. I watched all the Japanese shooto fighters and the uh, the, the older um, shoot matches out there and the pancreation matches back in the day. And I really liked that they were using leg locks effectively. And I studied a lot of that game and came up with some cool leg lock stuff. Um, but yeah, it's mostly live rolling when I just see a new opportunity and try and figure something out. And it's like, I see if it, if it has promise, I put more thought into it and try and refine it and make it more effective. Studying, not so much. I feel like studying matches, it's like, you can pick up a thing here or there that someone else is doing, but it's usually a pretty subtle, just like a slight grip change or something that kind of adapts to maybe something you're doing that you can incorporate and make your game a little bit tighter and better. Um, but most of it, like actually most of my like my innovations as far as moves with the lapel go happen in competition believe it or not it's just like in a match something about the comp like when you can't really think and you're just acting on instinct a new opportunity is there and i just take it like the ankle trap stuff i was working at europeans it's like i've messed around with it before but i never really saw a real value in it until it happened at europeans and i then i just did it in every match i did it to ali and then wardinsky and a few of my other matches and i never do that in training but then after, I was like, dang, that's actually really effective against people who don't know what I'm doing. So a lot of times it's com- competition. Going back Which is to why you. I always push for like moves that are tried and tested in competition. Because anyone can just go make up a sequence. Like, right. You can just go on any, – anyone can do it. You can go on Instagram and just make up a sequence that looks kind of cool. But if you're not actually doing it in a competitive environment, there's a very low chance that it's even going to work effectively consistently. So I kind of stick to like teaching the moves that work in competition for that reason. So I know – that my like my product which eventually turns into a product that's how i make money is like 
I know it's actually a good product and it's going to result in people actually being able to use it as you guys have seen with the last few tournaments the, this year and last year, everyone using lapel guard. So oh, it's, it's I think that's a place. testament of how the move has actually created. I remember back in the day, actually, about you saying about how, you know, you were learning off YouTube. And I remember you specifically mentioned the pentagram choke from YouTube about yeah. how yeah. it was like this most yeah. I want ridiculous to move that could never, ever actually function. But I want, so ridiculous. I, I want to hear about that. Out? Yeah. <laughs> I want to hear about the leg locks you created when you were a blue belt or whatever. Do you, do you, any of them that you still use or was it all garbage? These, these leg lock stuff you used to make up back in the day. With your shooter. Um, the influence. only one that really stuck around was the. Uh, the knee bar trap where you actually figure for the other person's leg oh, and you can I've set seen, it up yeah. in half guard. Yeah. Herber started using it a few years ago, but I, I have a video on my old YouTube channel from like 2009 where I've I seen the video. Yep. Like 17 or something. So that was probably the best one I came up with. And I, I used that throughout like the ADCC camp still. And um, that was probably my main contribution to the leg lock game because it's actually a significant chunk, but no one really uses it. But it is really strong, and you, there's even a whole guard system from there. It's called knee bar guard that uh, me and Andres have kind of worked out, but we never talked about it or released it or anything. So there's still like I still have a lot of stuff like uh, loaded up, ready to go. New things that I, I use in training, but I've never talked about. So times like these is maybe a, a good time to reach into the, the bank and pull out some new techniques and show show them off. But uh, that's the main one from leg locks. I have some heel hook tricks that I picked up over the years, but they're more just little tweaks and personal wrist positioning that helps me. But I think Danaher's system is probably superior overall when it comes to leg locks. Uh, something I saw uh, recently back in the good old days when everybody was still training, uh, Felipe Andrew, uh, <laughs> after Euros, uh, Felipe Andrew was training with you a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. He was planning on coming back out too um, for Pan's camp, but Pan's got canceled and... Uh, there were some issues before that as well with getting him set up with a place out here to stay. But I hope to be trained with him in the future um, going forward. There's That's pretty cool, though. Uh, can you explain a little bit about how that came about? Because, you know, it was a pretty big deal, right? You guys faced off and, you know, Europeans absolute. And it's very rarely we see you get put in positions like that, but you got caught. But then literally like days or a couple of weeks later, you're pictured together in the gym working out. That's that's unusual. Yeah, I think it's unusual for other people. But if you actually look at who has submitted me in my career, I trained with all of them. <laughs> you uh, mean one both of, of them. the very first person. <laughs> there's only two, right? <laughs> well, there's three, like of all submissions in my competition. Uh, if back at Purple Belt in 2011, I got right. submitted by a guy named Galerme DeLima, and he actually trains at Legion now. He's a member there. Oh, wow. So I trained with him, and then. After Gordon submitted me, you guys know I trained with Gordon a lot over the last couple of years as well. And then now Philippe submitted me and I'm trying to train with him a lot as well. And like, what better way to learn, you know, than the guy who actually is able to submit you, you know, and like, it is pretty rare for me to get caught. It happens to everyone. But when it does happen, the best course of action you can take is try and learn from it. And there's no better way to learn from it than try and learn from the guy who caught you. So I just have a pretty like. I don't really care about the competition results that much. Like I try and win and I try and train hard and I try and do my best, but I enjoy the learning process and I want to be as knowledgeable as possible because my real goal is to be a, like a, a really good teacher and be a knowledge base for the massive world of jujitsu. And so I try and get all the information, not just the stuff that I'm good at, but the stuff that I'm bad at. And I think that's where I, I want to focus on is the stuff that I'm bad at. And that literally, I can't think of a better way. Don't you, you think it's know. interesting, though, Better that way. not not only is it interesting that you 
uh, seeking out training with those guys. But I also think, think it's interesting that those guys are then willing to work with you because, you know, that's maybe something that a lot of people would want to keep to themselves, right? Shows a certain openness on their part too. Yeah. Wait, so there's in your entire career three people. And so Glarmy tapped you at purple belt. You never got tapped at blue belt or, or white belt? No, I, I, I did back in Hawaii, but – Okay. They were also by. It was by two guys. One guy named uh, Jordan <laughs> Gomez, I think, was his name, and another guy. I got submitted with like a headlock. It was literally a <laughs> headlock. Okay. It was a wrestler, man. Marcus is his name. That's He's a Mar- guy. Yeah. Marcus headlocked the and, shit uh, out of you, but uh... he headlocked me and tapped me when I was like sixteen. So it's, <laughs> I guess five times, five times total in competition. But since I started training full time, just uh, never a The back. very first time. Was well, well Brownbelt, yeah, he only nothing. lost to Polo. That was it. That right, was the only yeah, loss, right? The one loss, right? Uh, so, Glamry. Yeah, those were the glory days. Does, the, does Glamry got a nickname? Is that that? What was that guy? G Money? Was that him? G Money, yeah. G Money, that's him. I didn't know that G. Yeah, yeah. he is a character. G Money, uh, yeah, he told me that Roland with Keenan is like running from the cops or something, I think, when I interviewed him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's hilarious. <laughs> I didn't realize yeah, that he had uh, tapped you back in the day. Yeah, back it was Purple Belt 2011 Worlds Absolute. I had won my really? division and it was my first gold medal at an IBJF, IBJJF event. My first medal ever. I had just started training at Lloyd Irvin's and I was training pretty hard and kind of getting into that vibe of like full-time training and figuring out how to do competition and stuff. And then I went to the Absolute and I, he pulled clothes guard on me and I tried to stand up and he double ankle swept me. And I, as I got swept, I tried to turn away to avoid the sweep and he jumped on my back and rear naked choked me. Oh, legendary Gosh. G money. That guy's fun to watch roll, man. I like. I it, actually in that forty-eight minutes rolling thing, you roll with him in there at one point. If, if oh yeah, I roll with him a lot. He's he's yeah. very good. He's he's a he's a big strong dude, and he's got good technique, and he's explosive. He's a great training partner. So I mean, it's it's cool that we like stuck stuck around and still know each other and kept in touch. He even started training at Lord Irvin's for a while. He's a good guy for sure. But also, I think to touch on what uh, you guys were saying about them being open-minded too. Because I think at first there might be a little bit of, like, apprehension there. But it becomes pretty clear when I start training with people. I'm not trying to keep any secrets. Like, like the first thing I do when I start training with someone new is just show them everything. Like, <laughs> whatever they want to see, any questions, even if they don't have questions, I just show them all my moves, any cool tricks I, I know, anything I think that they might enjoy if they haven't seen. I just am very forthright about it right off the bat and try and show everything and... uh I think that relaxes people a little bit to know that it's like, I'm not trying to get any information out of them. I just want to roll. I'm not trying to ask them questions about anything in particular. I'm just trying to put forth information and train because I pick up the most just through training. So you don't ask them like, what was it that you did that, you know, enabled them to catch you in the moment, you know, that, that particular match or like, do you dress that at all? all, Or do you just, I don't ask. I just, I just wait until we get in that position. I just try and figure out new ways to deal with it. And that's usually really successful. I can figure out stuff. Um, but at that point, it, it, like, it's such a small number of people. The chances of me competing against them are pretty small. They're pretty slim. The only guy was, uh, I think I trained with Gordon a little bit at Moe's house and stuff. And then we fought again at ADCC. But that was the only situation that that's happened. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't usually ask questions. I, I, I feel like that would be kind of uncomfortable maybe if it's like, clear that the only reason I brought them out was to ask them how they submitted me and to stop it next time. But you can kind so of you just... ask them, you film it, and then you're like, all right, I got to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right, get out of here now. I'll see what matters. <laughs> no, I, I, I really like, I'm really way more about the learning. Like, I don't, I, honestly, 
competition is not very fun for me. I, I just do it to test my moves. It, but it's like, uh, that's the real work. That's like going to work for me. It's like, fuck, I got to go to work. That's how I feel. <laughs> I, I got to ask though, because um, you, you mentioned about competition and, and, you know, we were hoping to see you at Pans, but I believe you got, you got injured and, and then you got ringworm like around about the same time. Yeah. The Substars event, it, it wasn't a serious injury, but I had just come off uh, that loss to Roberto and the gym uh-huh. was in full swing and lots of stuff was going on right after that. And I, I just figured it probably wasn't the best time to go do the Substars event. Well, you lucked out and there. Then, Nobody got paid. So yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it wasn't a bad choice at all. Um, I'm glad I did it for sure. And Philippe took the match. We were training together. We had a good training camp and just got him ready for it instead. And he won, submitted the guy with an ankle lock. So that was good. And then pans, uh, I got ringworm on my hand and uh, it would have just gone away after a couple of days, but I did something stupid and tried to put bleach on it and it ah. damaged my hand pretty bad. Yeah, that so doesn't do, work. Like, I, I know yeah. many people who tried that. <laughs> don't put bleach on ringworm. That's what I used so. to do when I was a kid in wrestling. We used to take like disposable yeah, razors that's and what sha- I did. Yeah, shave it oh, and put bleach on it. it. Yeah. Terrible. Oh, shave it. Yeah. Yeah. Shave God it open. It, shave it Michael open Sears. it up and put bleach on it. That's what I used to do when I was a kid. Oh my God. Uh, Apparently, yeah. it's really oh. bad for your kidneys. Uh, it's got to be a, can't be good for you putting bleach on your body. Yeah, you're not, it, you absorb it and then your kidneys take a big hit. But I used to do it too when I was younger in jujitsu, and it always got rid of it. I'd put a little bleach on a Q-tip and just rub it on there a day or two, and it was gone in the third day. But I think your body changes as you get a little older. Maybe it's not. I'm not as resilient as I was. Now, so obviously, uh, we've got the whole epidemic, pandemic going on right now. So everything's in flux and we've no idea what's going on with the competition scene. But, um, you know, of course, fans would love to know when they would be able to see you back in action. I mean, would you have been aiming for an appearance at Worlds? Uh, yeah, I was definitely going to do Worlds. I was trying to take the Pans Month off to finalize the gym and get the final construction done and try and put the people in charge of running the business in charge of it fully so I could focus on training for a month. For, or two months for Worlds, but that's not going to pan out now. But that was the plan. I was going to try and get Philippe back out to do a training camp and Bruno Lima from Portugal. But now it's like Bruno's kind of a beast. Through. Is Bruno stuck he's, in he's Portugal? Made. Probably. I'm probably. Yeah, yeah he's I'm in there. Oh, if... I was in contact with him for a visa thing. I was trying to help him out with. But oh, oh speaking of, um, you, you had like a the the, the whole uh, Legion sponsorship thing going on with Bruno there, and I think he was the first confirmed guy. Uh, that you had yeah. what was the uh the response like for that because you put the call out in um december uh, right around the time of nogi worlds i believe and um i believe you had like a, a huge influx of applications how did that pan out yeah i had tons of applications and i was just waiting for the gym to be finished to hold the tryouts so it was looking like we were about two to three weeks away from finishing the gym like we were so close to having it finished but it's actually good because i didn't have to like paying the contractor that final lump sum to finish out the project would have been a huge hit in a time like this. So that that's getting put on hold is kind of going to help keep my gym afloat for sure. Um, but yeah, we had over like 600 applicants, a lot of people I recognize, a lot of really good lower belts and stuff. But mainly what happened with that was a lot of good black belts hit me up who are looking wow. for an opportunity like that. And um, I was really close to signing a sponsorship deal to help me with a fighter house, but I'm not sure if it's going to play out now with, with this situation, but they're supposed to send me a contract like this week to secure a fighter house situation. So we'll see how that turns out. But if no one's training, it doesn't really make sense to keep pushing for it until this kind of passes. But I had three, there's one purple belt, two black belts. I can't say the second black belt who was confirmed, but 
uh, we'll see if it comes to fruition at the end of this whole event. And then after that, I'm going to hold the tryouts still as well to finalize the last few spots. A lot of names you recognized? Oh yeah. I mean, there's so many, like I go to, I've been to so many jiu-jitsu tournaments. Anyone who trains has come up to me and said hi at some point, you know, I've seen everyone. So if they're a a tough grappler, chances are I've trained with them or I've met them or I've seen them somewhere. So I recognize a lot of the people in the community. Ricardo, did you apply for the fighter house? I did, and then my email bounced. It said, uh, <laughs> "They said denied." I don't know what's denied. up with that, Keenan Cornelius. <laughs> no Canadians alive. Yeah, <laughs> no. I got a lot of people who are like definitely not ready for a, like a pro competition environment yeah. applying. I want Naga. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I have to kind of filter through to see who I invite from the application list, but hopefully we get to that eventually when this whole thing blows over. That's uh, the plan, though. So you had uh, some, you were doing that uh, beginners program at your school. I saw some ads for it online and stuff. How did uh, how did that work out? Did uh, the whole like eight week or whatever program? Did you finish an entire uh, course of that before this yeah. happened? How did how did it go? Yeah, so I finished the whole course, and Andres was the head instructor of that course, and he gave everyone a stripe at the end of the course, and then uh, a good portion of them signed up to the gym afterwards, just like we had planned, and they're having a great time. And uh, we started the second course. We'd only had two classes before this whole thing shut down. So we're going to, we told all of them that it'll pick back up right at the end of the ordeal and we can get back to training. Timeline of that is uncertain, but uh, it's, it's been a huge success. It's really amazing to see how many people want to do jujitsu. Like if you can reach the right people who have been exposed to it in some way, but haven't started training, there's a lot. Like the first one had 26 or 28 people. The second course had 33 or something. That's a lot of people signing up for a jiu-jitsu gym in a short amount of time. Yeah. And so, like, man, my gym was, like, going up. It was perfect. Like, everything was going great. Miha describes this as a, a black swan event, which we actually thought about a few months ago. We were like, what happens if something just goes wrong right now? Like, what could happen? He's like, nothing's going to go wrong. The worst <laughs> thing that yeah. happens is one of these – one of these uh, A pandemic. It's the worst thing that happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, we we're, we joked that the worst thing that could happen is a fighter jet from the Miramar Air Force Base just, like, crashes directly into our building and kills us all. That's oh. the only thing that could go wrong. Only thing, but yeah. But we failed to see the virus impact, so it's the, a pretty uh, big hit, but it's like, damn, you got to roll with the punches, and hopefully I can recover from it. So for people who aren't familiar, uh, you had a, a whole bunch of brand-new first-day people join the same day. They go through the whole course together. And uh, how many of them dropped off? How many of them finished? Did, did most of them finish it? Most of them finished it. It was probably about an 80% finish rate. Okay, then not bad. That's really good, actually. Up for, like, for the contract is a, a little bit longer, but it's a pretty effective system. Um, just like with like me and Mihawk, man, we put our heads together on this stuff pretty hardcore, and that's kind of why I had to take some time off from training super serious. I was t- teaching a lot and training a lot, but it was like not focused on me as much. So we're trying to like do things different in the business realm as well. The the jujitsu business model has stayed the same for so long and no one's really trying anything new. So we really try new things and then actually test our results and then continue doing the things that work. And that adaptability, I think is what allowed us to get our gym up and running in such a short amount of time and have uh, a pretty large amount of students right away. All right. Uh, We've been going. um, All right, go ahead, Ricardo. Oh, sorry. I just have one question. Um, so can you tell, like, what was the beginner course kind of focusing on? And second question, at what point for, like, for your students do you introduce 
the lapel guard? Like, would you say like is yeah. there a certain that's the exact level? question I was going to ask? It, like, <laughs> I was just about to ask this question. Great yeah. minds. Uh, yeah, I know. I, you know, is it like a white? You know, is it three stripe wipeout? Is it blue? Is it pearl? what is it? Yeah. So to answer your first question, what what are they learning? Um, me and Andres worked on an eight week curriculum, so that'll be the curriculum that they all learn. And um, if we come up with new things along the way, we'll adapt the curriculum to be better for the students. But we have an eight week curriculum that covers, you know, the positions, the submissions, the sweeps. The but we start off with just what is jujitsu, like explaining like how bodies interact to try and submit each other, and kind of like explain what it is even because a lot of these white belts think that this is just a, another martial arts still. These are people that just saw an ad for martial arts, jujitsu. Maybe they don't even recognize what it is. Maybe they've never even watched UFC or if they have watched UFC, they don't make the connection that jujitsu is in a gi. So it's like, you have to start at square, square one. You know, I'm not just going to jump in and start teaching these guys, even triangles right away, because it's like wrap your leg around some guy's head. That doesn't really sound like something I want to do. So you kind of have to be gentle with how you present the information. And then, gradually transition them into like full on rolling. Um, but I, I know a lot of gyms don't let their, their white belts roll for a very long time. We let them roll just usually positional from a, a, a very supervised uh, area and for a short amount of time to let them feel what it actually feels like to roll, because I think that's super important for retention. Um, and then as far as teaching lapel guard, like, as you guys know, a lot of my students are from other gyms. Like m the first 100 students we had, they're all from other gyms. Like there was very few, there's probably like two or three white belts that were, had not really trained before that signed up when I first opened. So most people are from other gyms. And what I found myself doing for the first few months is really just like fixing things, like fixing a lot of bad habits that these other gyms were showing them and a lot of bad drilling habits, a lot of bad technique habits and try, like I kind of had to start with a foundational thing and I didn't teach lapel guard at all. And maybe people were disappointed in that, but I think it was the right choice for their actual learning to provide like a, a base to build off of before we start getting into lapel guard. And I view lapel guard as like, it doesn't even belong in the same category as most jujitsu moves in its mechanics of how it works. And then also like its function because it, lapel guard is not something you're going to use in a fight situation. It's literally anti jujitsu. It's jujitsu to beat jujitsu which is kind of part of the reason I call it AJJ and everyone likes to get, just get super upset about calling it American Jiu-Jitsu, which maybe we can talk about because that should get cleared up too. Yeah, that's I'm ridiculous and people yeah. upset about that. But, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I think of it as like anti-Jiu-Jitsu. So it's not something I teach right away to my students. I want to make sure that they have a good foundation. And the lapel encyclopedia is structured in a way that it skips that and it's for people who want to learn how to win at jujitsu right away so like if the students are coming to my gym and their goal is to get good at jujitsu we're not going to start with lapel guard but if you have some previous experience with jujitsu and you kind of understand what's going on lapel guard is a great way to start winning like tomorrow like you start busting out a lapel guard you're going to have much more success against the blue belts that was kicking your ass last week because it's anti-jujitsu the whole thing is designed to beat jujitsu moves and it works really effectively at that. So I build a foundation and then I start to incorporate foundational lapel techniques like the intermediary positions and how to use the lapel like another grip or like a, how a sleeve grip is used to control. The lapel grip lip, the uh, lapel grip can be used to control. And then we move on to like simple sweeps from there. And then only to the advanced guys right now am I teaching like reverse Della Worm and the like back takes and the Polish worm. I don't teach that to the, the 
lower belts right now. I kind of am just easing them into it because I want them to get really good at it. I don't want people just like getting right into lapel guard, getting obsessed with it because it's so fun and they have so much success with it, but then they're not have it cultivated the other part of their game, which I also think is important. So yeah, that's kind of my method there. Yeah. Uh, something- I got one more peep. Sorry, people bye. people bye. probably assume that you just like when they, when people drop in they're probably like oh I'm gonna learn some lapel stuff from Keenan because like like me and how how got his black belt from De La Hiva. I used to train there Americans would always expect they're only gonna learn De La Hiva guard when they go in there and it's like yeah the guy's gonna teach more than one position uh, yeah he actually <laughs> I I can count the amount of times that he taught De La Hiva in class on like two hands because he was teaching half guard and mount and yeah. back attacks and everything else it's, yeah Ke- so. Keenan before we move on to AJJ I want to ask you do you teach the Barambolo? Do you ever set up in a class and show people how to bear and bolo? I have not done that yet, but I, f- I fully plan to. I think there I think there's a time and place to like learn a move just to learn how to defend it. So you need to have people actually doing the move properly before you can learn how to defend it properly. And uh, I actually have a, a guy at my gym right now who came from Northern California. Uh, his name's Austin Fraley, and he has the best bear and bolo I've ever felt. Like it's Whoa. so good, it's crazy. I've never been like. I trained with Levi. I haven't trained with Mikey. I've trained with the Mendez brothers. I've trained with the Meow brothers. None of them have ever successfully barambolaed me to the back. Like maybe Hoffa. I don't think so. Not in the gi, that's for sure. But uh, Hoffa always kicked my ass no gi, surprisingly. He kicked my ass no gi way worse than in the gi. But um, this, guy, this kid, Austin, just the other day, like he's barambolaed me straight to the back like three times since I've been training with him. And I don't understand it. And I'm trying to figure out like what he's doing differently than these other guys that I trained with because I'm doing the same defenses, but he's beating my defenses right now. And he's just he just got his brown belt. He's like incredibly talented. But wow, he gotta look really out for this guy. Yeah, he hasn't really got into the competition scene super serious yet. And I think we need to work on his mental game a little bit before he gets in there more hardcore. But he's got some incredible talent for sure. One of my most talented guys. Him and Jacob Kasami are really, really tough and train with me right now. You must get excited um, when you come across guys like that. Oh, yeah. It's, a, it's awesome. And his, it's, he has a pretty interesting story. Maybe I'll tell it another time. But I didn't. I had no idea he was as good as he was until probably a month or two after he joined the gym. Um, and there's a few reasons for that. But, yeah, it kind of blindsided me how good this kid was. And uh, it was pretty exciting to see that there was that, like, that kid that much talent like right there and i got to start molding it and like <laughs> building his game a little bit and providing instruction and uh it's been a fun experience for sure ricardo you were uh, i cut you off what were you gonna say ricardo i totally forgot at this point you All know right. I, I, there's a lot of questions i want to ask keenan but i don't want to take everyone's time well, I, i'll raise my hand when i remember let's, again. Let's, sorry let's, about that let's let's segue into uh ricardo you're the founder of cjj up there canadian jiu-jitsu you have your own little thing going <laughs> But uh, have you started that, Ricardo? That is. You're CJJ now? Yeah, no, I'm. That... Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, no. no we, the CJ, I don't. There was a CJA or a CJ OJC. Uh, there's all these, okay. you know, different organizations with that. I don't want to get into that here in Canada. Canadian uh, Jiu-Jitsu no, is the next thing. Uh, no, because you know what? When people say Canadian Jiu-Jitsu, they they remember like the dorky, you know, guys with the karate pants and the t-shirt and the you know karate sparring with that. They can do throws and like that. So I, I try to stay away from that as much as I can because that's a bad look <laughs> out here. I want to well, totally American differentiate. I think American jiu-jitsu could easily be misinterpreted as that too, sort of like dudes in you know, right. American flag, karate pants, kicking pads and stuff. But I, I, I think it's up to Ricardo like to 
change the stigma associated with Canadian jiu-jitsu and American jiu-jitsu because we can lead the way and make it be a lot cooler than it once was, for sure. Well, there's there's a lot of up-and-coming talent here in Canada. I keep telling Sears about it. He's got to listen. So, you know, maybe that'll be the new uh, CJJ movement coming soon. Uh, so, Keenan, you want to take uh, this opportunity to explain your AJJ thing, although people aren't going to listen to you. Nobody's going nobody's gonna... to. Yeah. Well, no one ever makes it this far in the podcast. It's this the, the diehards that actually already understand anyways. But I'll take no, a we'll shot clip at this it. Out. We'll clip this out and, uh, and post it. Let's hear your explanation of AJJ, what, what it is, and why people are getting you wrong. Well, first, let's talk about why people are angry. Like, why do you think people are upset with calling it AJJ, what would what would your guys' opinions be on that? Like, why why do I? If you look at my Instagram, whenever I mention AJJ, there's all the comments from Brazilians threatening me. <laughs> basically, why do you think that is? Why do you think I think, it's, I think that, that they're I think that they're very proud that that's their sport, you know. And I think that they feel. Yeah. And I'm not saying I agree or disagree with them. I'm just thinking about what you know what they're saying. And I think that they're proud to say like, hey, this is our thing. And if you're mm-hmm. calling it American jiu-jitsu, it's almost like you're saying you're anti-Brazilian, and that's racist. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think that that could be a little bit of the no, element. No, some people have so called I think me some... racist. Yeah. That's true. I, de- I definitely think it's an element of fear as well, a fear of losing control. You know, there's, right. there's pride in the fact that there's something that they created. But if you go to Brazil and you go there, nobody calls jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu Brazilian. in Brazil. It's just jujitsu. I, I hear, I've heard that, but then when you look in Brazil, the gyms are called BJJ, like on the gym names. A lot of the gyms have true. BJJ on it. Th- that is true, so, but I think that's more of an international well, thing because I've I, seen, yeah, the majority of gyms okay. are are just JJ. That is, yeah, yeah, maybe it originated from the US calling it BJJ, and then For it just sure. the marketing name transferred back to there. But it is called BJJ in Brazil now. Because when sure. I what went is, there originally and I started telling people, I'm like, oh, you know, BJJ, they would look at me like, what? <laughs> they didn't know what it was. So, yeah. And, and a lot of it, a lot of it has to do with like, you guys got to remember one thing. Like, it was just jujitsu. Like, in Brazil, it was jujitsu. So, when the mm-hmm. Gracies first started doing it, they weren't saying, like, this is Brazilian jujitsu. When the Gracies came to America, a certain sect, they trademarked Gracie Jiu-Jitsu mm-hmm. and only those people were allowed to teach Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. So then the other family members were like, all right, well, we're Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And that's how the kind of Americanized name sort of started here. So, you know, that's a long time ago. I think now, like I said, I think the Brazilians have a lot of pride and I think that that's where the offense comes, but you may continue. Yeah. So I, I think there's three ways, there's three reasons why I think there should be a different differentiation between Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and American Jiu-Jitsu. The first is just representation of your country. In any sport, you're going to have representatives from different countries. And for a very long time, there was not a lot of American Jiu-Jitsu practitioners. I'm saying American Jiu-Jitsu practitioners because that's what you would call them. You wouldn't call them American Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioners. You call them American Jiu-Jitsu practitioners. Like no one's going to say, oh, I'm a an American Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioner. No, that is just not how you would describe the situation. So Jiu-Jitsu is the base sport. And I think people know that when you speak about it, for sure. It's a base sport. And then your nationality should dictate where you are representing that base sport, which is Jiu-Jitsu. That came from Japan, right? Most of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, the basis of it, the main techniques, the submissions, the guard positions, originated in Japan before they 
came about in Brazil. And that's just a fact. If you look up any sort of older instructionals or videos of jujitsu back in the day, there's a lot of uh, techniques that are were prevalent before it entered Brazil. So the first argument is like, I'm representing America as a jiu-jitsu practitioner, and I want to represent what America has to offer in the jiu-jitsu scene competitively. So for a very long time, JT was the only guy who was holding it down for America and representing American jiu-jitsu. Even if he wasn't saying it, it was American jiu-jitsu or wearing it on his gi or anything. Like he was an American jiu-jitsu practitioner and fighting against all the Brazilians. And no one had a problem. No one ever said anything to him about being American and doing jiu-jitsu. So now we're reaching a point where it's like, okay, then it was like me and JT who were holding it down for like three or four years. There wasn't really anyone else who was representing at the higher level or at least meddling at these events. And I started wearing USA on my back and talking about American jiu-jitsu back then, like when I first went to Team Lloyd Irvin, like I was already thinking about this. Jake Shields had started talking about it maybe even before I did. Yeah, I mean, he's got a tattooed on his arm. Yeah, it's not a new concept. And I don't claim to have created the idea of American jiu-jitsu. But it is a, uh, a name for the people who are in America, who represent America in the sport, f- facing against other countries that are doing their country's version of jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, whatever. So I think that's an important um, and easily overlooked explanation right there. It's like, of course, we're going to represent America on this the international stage. We're the American jiu-jitsu practitioners, just like you're the Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioners. And then there's Polish jiu-jitsu practitioners. And you're, you, when you say it like that, it just sounds like you're describing people from a geographical or national location, which makes total sense. Now, then there's the second reason you could call it um, American Jiu-Jitsu, which is like based on contribution to the overall sport itself, right? So you could say that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, there are a lot of contributions that Brazilians have made to Jiu-Jitsu, like um, Tedede, Jacare, a lot of these competitive jiu-jitsu athletes from like the late 90s, early 2000s, who like changed the way guard passing was done with like long steps and X passes and knee cuts and doing all these things that were like so dynamic and different than the more traditional on your knees, pressure passing. Um, uh, Nino Shimbre with the Umaplata, like all the things he did with the Umaplata. Poleta with the open guard, overhead sweeps. Like there's so many contributions, contributions that Bruce... Oh, my Alexa just I must have said her name. <laughs> I gotta say, I'm impressed by Keenan's uh, historical knowledge here. Me too. Well yeah. done, Keenan Cornelius. Oh, I've been in this for a while, man. I've been in, I've been doing this I know, since I was I know. 14. Um, I know. And I've always studied it. So, like the contributions are huge from the Brazilian. Uh, culture and what they've done for jiu-jitsu i don't think the gracies have contributed as much technically to that field as much as they contribute to its overall um visibility in the world i think the gracies have made a massive contribution to the visibility i don't think very many people in america would be doing jiu-jitsu at all well decades ago maybe right yeah right well yeah maybe um but i think that's up for debate as far as like what was changed it's like the triangle choke did it really change that much i'm not sure there's not not really any way to tell but there are huge contributions made from brazilian jiu-jitsu so now let's look at american jiu-jitsu as far as the contribution standpoint i am one of the few people who like frequently comes up with new things like new effective movements that you can actually put into a jiu-jitsu system and it works in the sport system it works in the training system 
you could argue that you might be able to use a t-shirt to like pass under a leg. Like I'm not saying you're going to be able to do any sort of crazy reverse delt worm stuff in a street fight, but the gripping of a lower part of the material is functional. So from a contribution standpoint, I don't want to work my entire life where I've been training jiu-jitsu for 15 years, putting like blood, sweat, and tears into this these creations that are really my life's work. It's all I care about. It's what I've dedicated myself to. I can't just funnel that back into Brazilian jiu-jitsu. The Gracies have such a hold on the market of what is thought of as jiu-jitsu that anything that I do, if I don't brand it as something different, will just get absorbed by the Brazilian jiu-jitsu community and just be considered Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And it'll just kind of be lost as to where that actually came from. And so it's very important to me that I label my techniques as something different because they are different, both in function and in form and by who created them. This is a new era of technical innovation from the American people. As far as the Danaher crew with leg locks and what I'm doing in the gi, um, that needs to be separated because we deserve credit for these movements. And the only way to really guarantee that that comes back to you and you get recognized for it in any real regard is to call it what it is, which is American Jiu-Jitsu. These are creations and innovations that have come from America by Americans. And yes, we're black belts in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but I can go out to a competition. You guys have seen this. I can go win competitions at Europeans or any tournament entirely using my movements. Like I can hold, start start the match with the lapel and then end the match with the lapel in my hand. I will have done everything through a move that I created. And that's significant. And it shouldn't be considered Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at that point. If I can, if, if any of these guys online that are saying like, oh, I'm like, appropriating their Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu culture. If they want to come train with me, and of course I'm not afraid to train with anyone, like I'll literally train with anyone. There's not very many people who can hang with me in a training room or a competitive mat. I will beat them entirely with moves they've never seen before. So like you can argue it all you want, but the facts are I can win matches with my, my system only. And that is why it needs to be separated as something different from that standpoint. Like, it is different, and it needs to be regarded and such. And I'm not just going to work this hard just to give credit to the Brazilian community. I, I give them credit verbally for what they've done, and now I'm going to make sure that the Americans get credit for what we have done and not just let it trickle back into that massive Gracie and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu system that just gets absorbed and taken and used however they will with it. I'm going to control what I've created and make sure that I've presented to the world in a way that is... Uh, conducive to my vision of it so that is a, the other aspect and you know you mentioned well. about the sort of there were two factors there was the the geographical stroke regional kind of uh, label of american jiu-jitsu and then of course there's the the technical uh, innovation side of the jiu-jitsu which the two the two feed into the same thing but i can think of example from judo where there are very recognizable techniques systems used and they are labeled Russian judo. They're labeled Mongolian judo. And yet nobody seems to freak out about those. Do you think it's just a case of that jiu-jitsu needs a little longer to fully globalize before that kind of thing is considered acceptable? I think it it's already acceptable and no one is going to, like, there's a very small portion of the population that it gets really up in arms about that. And they're mostly seem to be like hardcore Gracie supporters that I get a lot of hate from probably because of the purple belt comments I made a while back, which I could also take some time to explain maybe. 
Um, I think there's a big language barrier issue because like as a sort of a prominent member in the scene and when I say things like if it's put through a translation like it's going to come out differently than I actually said it and there's a lot of context in things and so and I'm pretty like opinionated I'm just going to say whatever right. obviously things are <laughs> yeah things are going to get lost in translation but I can't live like walking on eggshells so I'm going to say what I believe and just continue with it but um, I think it's acceptable and I think most of where it comes from is, like you said, a little bit of a fear of like a loss of control of things. And I'm just like fighting for my control of my pot little pocket that I've got in this thing. And I'm not just going to give that up. Like I worked really hard at this. I've really put a lot of time and effort and money into this to get to where I am today. And I think it would be really um, cowardly of me to just like stand down to the 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 patriarchs of this community, the Gracies or whoever is like upset at me for something just because they say that I shouldn't call something what it is. So I'm not, I'm not going to take that route. It has, that, I don't think that would work out for me very well. And I'm not, I'm not here to like push their agenda. I'm here to like stand for what I believe in. Question for you though. Hang on, sir. That when you see a kid, let's say for example, uh, uh, Huey Alves, you know, really good purple belt out of Dream Art Academy in Sao Paulo, Alliance team member. And his jujitsu is very, very similar to yours. You know, we've got great videos of him on the site. And many people have remarked that pretty much everything that he does is out of your playbook. Is it still American jujitsu? I would say that, that he is a Brazilian practitioner who specializes in American jiu-jitsu. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. I was an American practitioner that specialized in Brazilian jiu-jitsu for a very long time until I started coming up with this new system um, and doing it my own thing. And to this day, I enjoy doing pure Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I'll go full, like, I'll go months in full training sessions where I never touch lapel just to make sure I stay sharp in, like, fundamentals of the game and try to figure out adaptations I can make to the Brazilian jiu-jitsu positions because that there is a crossover, obviously, like it's still a grappling art. Um, but I, yeah, I think that's American jiu-jitsu. And just because someone else is doing it, which is the intention, everyone should be doing it. But it shouldn't be called Brazilian jiu-jitsu if that's not what it is. And like the the origin of the move is from an American who created it. It's American jiu-jitsu. Like if you called it Brazilian jiu-jitsu, it's like okay, where's the connection to Brazil? Like, does anyone see it? I don't see it. Like, where did Brazil have a, a place in creating lapel guard? Like, I don't know. Uh, something I would like to go back to, I think something else that you should would probably like to clarify, something else you get a lot of threats about. When you brought up the Helio thing, can you explain to the people who want to kill you what you meant? Hickson. I think it was Hickson. Or, yeah, Hickson or whatever. It was whatever it was. Yeah, okay. No, I, 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 there's only, well, first of all, those were the only two people I could think of in that time period because they were the only family that was training back then. So I was comparing Olympic athletes of today to Olympic athletes from the 60s is what I was saying. That was the original context of the situation and how much uh, sports evolve over a period of time as far as like performance and technique, like the actual output that these athletes are able to do from like a physical output standpoint and also a technical one. If you watch, there, there's some great um, compilations of like the parallel bars from 1920 to today and the difference in techniques that they've all been using over the course of 100 years. It's insane. And it's like there's this there's these big jumps in new techniques that come along. And it's, at first, they're just hanging on the bar and just like doing some weird little stretch. It looks almost like aerobic rather than acrobatic. 
and then it transitions into more spins around the bar and then people start incorporating these leg movements that like create these massive amount of momentum to get these crazy flips going and it it's a progression over time and then it's also like humans actually just get bigger and stronger too which changes a lot of the sports outcome as well so i compared purple belts to the black belts of like the 60s and 70s and like or 80s or whatever time period you want to put it it doesn't really matter if it was 10 years ago or 100 years ago there's going to be a significant difference in the output physically and then the technical innovations because jujitsu if you could like write down every jujitsu move in some master scroll in a temple in japan somewhere that scroll would have to be updated over time and there it would eventually fill up the temple with all these different scrolls of the new techniques that have come about and if you go back in time you're going to have access to these techniques that is limited compared to today and so also people have a very different understanding of what a good purple belt is to me because i trained with the best people in the world and i've like i had the luxury of doing that almost my entire career i've been around the best training partners that you can possibly get and most people when they think purple belt they think the purple belt at their gym or the purple belt that is just joe schmo purple belt when i speak about training and competition it's entirely from a perspective against the absolute best purple belts in the world and so i made a comparison from the best purple belts in the world today like guys like Ronaldo and uh, Jonatas back when they were purple belts, they easily crushed modern black belts. What do you think they would do to a black belt from the 60s? It's like, it doesn't matter who the name is. Like people get so attached to the name and the, the idol worship of jujitsu that it's like, okay, can you just put the facts on the table? It doesn't matter which black belt it was back then. They would all get wrecked by a purple belt from today, the best purple belts of today. And the reason I used Hickson and Helio as the example is because I, I don't know any other grapplers from that era. There were so few. Who else am I supposed to compare it to if I'm trying to make that comparison? Well, it's I, like I, we I'm going to like... throw something out at you as well. And sorry to interrupt, but you know this, this actually um, this is something that I heard firsthand in Brazil from the second eldest living member of the Gracie family, Hazen Gracie. He is okay. only only Hobson Gracie, Henzo Gracie's father, is the is oldest. He is the second oldest living member of the Gracie family, and he said to me, over we were sharing uh, coconut water on Copacabana Beach there in Rio de Janeiro, and he said to me, this was about seven eight years ago, he said a purple belt from nowadays would kick the ass of a purple belt from the eighties. So yeah, the like I say, one of the one of the highest ranked, oldest most prestigious, most revered members of the Gracie family, 100% agrees with your assessment. <laughs> well, he used two purple you know, belts as a comparison, which is a, a fair comparison. But I, no, no, I, he, I said say purple, he, said, he said a purple belt from now would kick the ass of a black belt from the 80s. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, he yeah, 100%, I mean, he's 100% backed you up on that. And, and I think, of course, you know, he definitely looks so at obvious. it from your perspective as well in that there's, there's a difference between a club hobbyist practitioner and a competitor but still, if you consider the advance in technology and development, he's like, absolutely, yeah, of course, no, kick their ass. Like, do you think I would hold any light to the people 30 or 40, 40 years from now, the best athletes from then? It's like, no, of course not. Like, what? It's going to change so much. It, it's silly to assume otherwise. And there's so much idol worship in jiu-jitsu that no one can just look at it for what it is and just appreciate that it's technique that allows all these people to do these things. And you can literally take away the person and put the technique in someone else and they can do the same thing. It's like 
the idol worship just pushes everything out of control to where you can't use people to compare like facts and uh, the real jujitsu technique without someone getting offended because there's so much idol worship and it just seems pretty silly to me i had a similar it, conversation it's, it's with like constricting with... Sorry, I had a similar conversation with John Danaher not that long ago as well. We were we were remarking about the the advancements in nogi jiu-jitsu over the last couple of years and of course he's been at the vanguard of that. He's been right at the forefront about you know the, the pioneering the, the the nogi game and and it's safe to say that it's unrecognizable from what it was 5 years ago, 10 years ago, right? With, with a lot of his influences. And um we were talking about how jiu-jitsu in 5, 10, 15 years from now will look so different to the jiu-jitsu of the 90s. I mean, you only have to go back and watch the ADCCs from the late 90s, from the early 2000s, and it just looks so different to, to what it does today. Imagine how... I imagine that's how boxers must feel. Watching Floyd, Floyd, Way, Floyd Mayweather, if I get his name out, watching Floyd Mayweather nowadays compared to grainy clips of Jig Lamotta from the 50s. Jack, you know what I mean? Yeah. Jack Dempsey. Exactly. Dukes up like that old style, you know, boxing. Yeah, it's totally different. The, uh, there's another big misconception too. And it's like the, the people who are upset about this kind of discussion also make a lot of comparisons saying like, oh, if you do the modern stuff, you don't know the older stuff. Like, oh yeah, that's you, it's only for modern things and you can't really know the old stuff too. Well, the facts of that situation is there's, the information is readily available and people are just learning the fundamental stuff much faster because it's everywhere. And if you just pay attention to what is on the internet and what is available, you can learn the foundation of jujitsu, the stuff that people are doing 15, 20, 30 years ago. You can learn it in a very short amount of time. And then after that point, it's like, well, how do we get better? What are we going to do? Just keep getting you know, more sharp with this simple movement or are we going to expand and try new things as well? If you take any purple belt, or me for probably the best example, I'll just use myself. If you take away the lapels, I do better nogi. I've literally won more tournaments nogi. I've placed higher. I've done better nogi. I mean, that doesn't make any sense if that's true. Like, well, how am I able to do anything nogi? It's, it's because the information is available and I can learn it all and then do more too. Just the capacity for human learning is limitless. And to put like it in a box is super silly. I think you talked about the ideology and how, you know, the old, some of the old school guys, they really, they want to la- they want to hold on to that. You know, they want to hold on to the greasy, like the core jujitsu and, and, and their reference is Hickson because all he does is the basics, you know what I mean? And that's who he is and that's why he won. But if you look at Hodger Gracie, who was without a doubt, the greatest jujitsu competitor of the Gracie family in reality, oh, one ADCC, right. one world. Of all time, Hickson was the man of his era, but he didn't have those competitions that Hodger did. Now, Hodger said it himself a few years ago. You know, he said, he goes, back in the day, you can win worlds training once a day and going to the gym three times a week. He's like, today, you got to train jujitsu twice a day and do physical conditioning or some, you know, uh, extra uh, activity or, or something at the gym at least once a day or four or five and days a week. Then you, so it's like, exactly. Well, <laughs> I, he didn't say that. He didn't say that. But talking, <laughs> okay. But talking, but but seriously, like even even that the best of the best of the Gracies acknowledge that point. So my point is, I think a lot of these guys are afraid to let go of the control, like you said, and they want they hold Hickson with such a huge regard. And, and by all means, Hickson was the man. Personally, I would love to see. A guy like Hickson and a guy like you take one of those core jujitsu techniques like Delahiva 
and and compare notes. I want to see that. And I think that that will blow people's minds because I seriously think that it, there's different explanations um, the way people teach. I once saw uh, Luis Heredia, one of Hickson's guys, talking about how to pass De La Hiva. And he uses just different analogies. But in the same thing, it was the same thing that – it was like thinking about what he said, it was the same thing that Hoffa was teaching. It's just the way they teach it, you know. So I, I would really like to see – a, you know, old and new school kind of jiu-jitsu sharing techniques as opposed to just saying, oh, this new generation's bullshit. That's bullshit. Having that mentality is whack. You know, we're yes, it's it 2020. Is. We got to evolve, you know? Because the, I've got a great I mean, example you, here of uh, Hoist Gracie, for example. He, we actually have, like, I, I pulled up some stuff because I was going to make something out of this. I just never got around to it. But I have all the quotes saved in front of me. And and there are two old school figures that I, that I looked at to compare. I just two great examples of the old school stuck in the mud kind of stupid attitude compared to the old school yet progressive evolutionary attitude and that was hoist gracie and fabio gurgel two very respected old school figures hoist he said jujitsu in the last 20 years it got horrible horrible got really really bad in the last 20 years because it added so many rules now, let's just discount the fact that it was actually his own father and, uh, you know, his side of the family who actually wrote the original rule book back in the 60s. But that's a different, different conversation. But his personal perspective with the jiu-jitsu nowadays is not as good as it was. Whereas Fabio Gurgel, on the other hand, he says that he doesn't understand this division between old school and modern jiu-jitsu because there are fundamentals that have to be respected. But... The techniques that are creating are being created all the time. The principles, the levers, the re- this is evolution. You cannot say that old school jujitsu is better than modern jujitsu because it's simply not. It it just it no. cannot be considered to be better. Well, modern jujitsu encompasses all of old school jujitsu too, and there is right. no divide. But the old school guys. Are, it's like imagine you studying something your entire life and you're a master of it. And then suddenly just being like, yep, I learned it all. Nothing else. No new information is allowed in this box. I don't want to have to learn anything else. Stop. <laughs> like That's what is happening, essentially. Is It's like a complete closed-mindedness of new ideas and new things. And that is obviously a really bad idea in anything. Like, you have to be open-minded and bring out new ideas. Which is why I bring up, like, thought experiments like that. It's just speculation and just, like, trying to articulate the differences that have evolved. Because... Jiu-Jitsu is just this abstract idea, basically. It's just a bunch of abstract ideas that apply to human bodies. And it's like, how are we supposed to have a discussion about that if it's we're, we're putting it in a container where there are ends to it, when there are no ends? Like, we have to explore it and take every possible route and try and figure out all the cool options that we have. That's what makes it super fun, for me at least, is the learning. And it's like, if we just stop learning... That's just giving up. So anyone who just refuses to learn new things is basically just giving up on jujitsu, in my opinion. And I agree. It's funny because it's funny because the hypocrisy is that if you ask those same old school people that are you know shitting on the modern generation, if you ask them you know about Holes Gracie, Holes was an innovator. He went and learned with wrestlers. He went to do sambo. Yeah. He went to do judo. So why is it okay that he did it just because it was Holes and? Like, I'm not saying that, you know, anyone's better than anyone, but I'm just saying that uh, what line is it acceptable and is it not acceptable to evolve jiu-jitsu? If you look at the double leg takedown back in the day, it was called Bayana. Now, if you go watch the old school Bayana clips of how they do a double, man, it'll blow your mind. Put a wrestling coach on, you know, and have them examine that technique. 
it's horrible. You know what I mean? But now the Bayana has evolved into the double leg and there's hundreds of thousands of variations of it. So evolution is a good thing, you know, but respect is one too. So we got to respect the old school and I'm glad Keenan Cornelius still respects the OGs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to respect them. If you just look into the information and no one's disrespecting anyone. It's the problem is everyone is just claiming disrespect instantly. It's like, Oh, you disrespected us instantly. Like, I, I feel so disrespected. It's like, what? I'm just talking about technique. It has nothing to do with you. You're choosing to feel disrespected over a technical discussion when no one's taking shots at anyone. No one's calling anyone bad. We're just looking at the facts laid out. But, I mean, really, it's just ignorance of, like, what is actually happening. If you take a few minutes to actually just look into any of it and see what has been contributed where and how it all came about and what happened where, it's like it's a very clear timeline of events. But everyone gets their information differently. Maybe they just focus on what their instructor tells them and they don't really do any extracurricular research. But that's basically all I do is I just research all the time about everything. That's what I enjoy doing. So I have I feel like I have a pretty good grasp on the situation. And so that's why I feel confident talking about it, because I can back up my arguments with like actual real world things. So I don't engage in the the, the weird like hate that I've got from uh brazil recently on instagram especially oh it's only on social media which is great i haven't encountered anyone in real life that has said anything um and i don't think i i will anytime soon it's mostly just the social media anonymity effect where people can just say whatever for attention and just want to be angry about something so they have something to do that day so i try not to focus on it too much but i feel like it's very clear and it, i don't think any americans disagree with me on that and i think the, the language barrier was an issue and i think the the culture is also a big difference because I don't fully understand the culture of another country unless I just fully immerse myself there for 10, 20 years. I'm not going to be able to get how Dude, things work sometimes there. even then, sense of humor just doesn't translate. Yeah, sure. Yeah, like, <laughs> there's so many subtle variations of how things are perceived and received, and I can't focus on trying to appease that culture when I'm just trying to speak to my culture anyways, really. So I don't really know what to do about it except to try and communicated as clearly as possible for anyone who actually wants to listen all right ricardo that. this is what's coming for you now that everyone knows you found a canadian jiu-jitsu so be ready for them in your comments <laughs> well that's one of the that's main fine. things people say it's like oh first ajj then what canadian bjj australia bjj norwegian BJJ. it's like yes that's the point yeah like, that <laughs> is the point thank you like I got, obviously I got... that is the point I got two final things to say because I know we're, we're cutting it short. But number one, Gerard Lebinski, is that Polish jiu-jitsu or is that American or Brazilian? That's worm riding. Yeah. Well, a lot of – yeah, the, the Polish worm I would say is a Polish jiu-jitsu move that I've incorporated into my American jiu-jitsu system as well. Just like jiu-jitsu – You've appropriated it. Brazilian yeah, just, well, just like Brazilian jiu-jitsu is heavily based off of Japanese jiu-jitsu, I would say American jiu-jitsu is based – in part, in one particular section of the Polish worm off of Polish jiu-jitsu. And, and you do fine. make a point and of would, saying I, that too, right? You make a point of calling back time. to where it came from. It came, Gerard yeah, every, got it from his coach in Poland and stuff. So, Yeah, anytime that I reference a move that someone else created, I do my very best to give credit to that person. And it's hard to do every single time because it's like there's so much jiu-jitsu technique and not everyone knows where they even learned it from or who True. invented it. But when I know the answer, I'm going to try and give the information. Like, and, it, and it's difficult to even follow. But that, that part of like how I make a living is by branding my techniques to me and like what I do. And that's just an important part of marketing. So it makes it very clear who created the technique. And that's intentional so that I can, you know, have, like make money. 
that's how it works. Like you have to be able to brand yourself and that's just how marketing works. But if it's something real like this, I mean, everyone should really be doing their best to brand it or take some credit for their move and push it out there in a way that brings something back to them. Um, and it's like, by no means am I trying to control it either though. It's like, if anyone goes and wants to teach a lapel guard seminar, what am I going to do about it? It's like, it's probably not going to be as good as like my lapel guard seminar maybe, but if they're teaching the stuff, how I teach it, then at least it's spreading the word. And like people clearly know where it came from if they do a little bit of research into it. So it's like, I'm not going to try and control the move and say no one else can do them. I think I'm encouraging people to do them. That's why I teach them. I want everyone to be able to do it, but it also is important to just at least put it in the proper category, which I would say is American jiu-jitsu. And I would say a lot of Danaher's system is his American adaptation to a lot of Japanese movements that he has made different or changes to. And then a lot of things that are completely new and innovative. And it's just like, let's just get, let, let the credit go to where, who it needs to go to and not create some sort of argument of who, like where it belongs. And it definitely doesn't need to be under a, a BJJ blanket. Well, Ricardo, I'm looking forward to the day you teach me the Canadian Barambolos. Yeah, Norwegian. Norwegian's got some good Barambolos going with their NJJ. But, hey, I guys. teach the Canadian Ankle Lock. I even Canadian. call it the Canadian Ankle Lock because I learned it from a guy from Canada who has the best ankle lock I've ever felt. There you go. It's like well, Paul Stark. Paul Stark. Is it Paul Stark? No. Hey. No. Ah, okay. Guys. What was his because there's a guy Paul Stark that was he's from here and he went to San Diego for a while and he was ankle locking a bunch of guys that's why I asked that hey uh, guys this is a great conversation I feel like we could go forever but I think uh, President Trump's about to go onto the lawn in a minute and do some sort of address I think we should cut it short and let people go see that thing Keenan thanks so much for coming Uh, shout out to all the old school jujitsu people we don't hate you don't don't come to my DMs and threaten to kill me uh, all right, you're, you're all in it with me now. <laughs> right, thanks, Keenan. Thank you very much for joining us on the the pandemic podcast special. Right? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, guys. All right, Caleb. See you later. Cut it. Thanks. Uh, See you guys.